Welcome to Let It Locate at Large. I'm Let It Locate. The withdrawal of Bernie Sanders from the race for the Democratic presidential nomination is likely to move the political debate towards the center, but the signature issue of the Sanders campaign, Democratic Socialism, may be getting more attention because the coronavirus pandemic has revealed flaws in the American political and economic system. Health care, education, protections for workers, and much of the social safety net are in a far worse state than they are in most other industrial democracies. Institutions in Europe and elsewhere that many Americans have long condemned as socialists are working while some of our own are failing. Michael J. Thompson, a professor of political theory at William Patterson University, and Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker, a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Rutgers, were on our show this past January to discuss anti-science attitudes and attacks on democracy, and they join us now to talk about their collection of essays called An Inheritance of Our Times, Principles and Politics of Democratic Socialism, which is published by O.R. Books. I'm very pleased that it brings Michael J. Thompson and Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker to our show. Welcome back. Are you there, gentlemen? Thank you for having us. Now, Michael, were you working on this book as the pandemic was emerging? Did you imagine that the hour times of your title would include the the health and economic catastrophes that we're now experiencing? I, I don't. No way did we have in mind the idea that there was a pandemic was even possible. But I do think that um, the idea that another crisis um, would be devastating for uh, you know capitalist society in America, in the United States, in particular, because of the um, movement away from the kind of social democratic origins of uh, the post-war. Um, American society, particularly the New Deal and the Great Society uh, programs with neoliberalism, I think we knew that whether it was of another financial crisis or of some other crisis, whether it's tied to um, you know environmental uh, catastrophe, or now we see it with a, with this pandemic, that the institutions uh, that have been rotted out by capitalism um, are really are they're they're faltering. So, so Gregory. With the U.S. leading the world in the number of COVID-19 cases uh, and deaths, uh, the greatest jump in unemployment, can our country's failures be attributed, at least in part, to our economic and political systems? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think as Michael already alluded to, um, you know, on the one hand, you have the erosion of the welfare state, starting something that's really been going on for the last 50 years. And it's just um, eating away at whatever social democratic institutions we had. Um, we, we, we were already at a disadvantage in, in the sense that we didn't have as strong uh, public institutions as, um, as, as, the European, as European states have. But right now, it's, just, it's, it's uh, really embarrassing to see just how much of uh, the protections regulations, all these things have been um, eaten away at, and also um, to watch uh, Donald Trump uh, even accelerate that process. Um, so, Michael, yes, uh, but, but weren't leading European economies facing economic and political troubles before the pandemic? Has the pandemic 
change the economic and political picture, or is it simply cast a light on existing problems? Well, I think it's we, we're really not sure where things are going to end up um, on the other end of this, whenever and wherever that whatever that looks like. But one thing I think is for certain, and I think this gets to the heart of really some of the defining differences between what we understand as a fundamentally capitalist form of society from um, a socialist form of society, which is how how countries, how nation states deal with their um, social wealth. And the United States, and, and to the large extent also England, but really fundamentally the United States, since 1980 has taken uh, a, a policy and political path to privatize as much social wealth as possible. And European and, states... And, and, and that's under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Correct, correct. And that's important to point out, that the Democratic Party um, definitely uh, abandoned um, many of its uh, economic substantive role in promoting social justice and instead moved on to more liberal symbolic forms of uh, social justice. And that's really significant because I think that um, that even though in Europe you definitely have a move also toward marketization, toward um, free markets, you don't have the same policies with respect to um, uh, uh, the, the kind of massive privatization of wealth. And this is important, I think, in a times of crisis in particular, because capitalism, in you know, really you have these three things that are tied together, uh, which is over the past 40 years, 50 years or so, declining growth, rising inequality, and rising debt. And these three things are linked. And I think that this is really going to show um, people really, it's going to reveal a lot of the crisis tendencies um, of, of, of capitalism. But haven't uh, many of the European companies also been moving toward the right? Hasn't uh, there been a very strong conservative movement pretty much throughout the continent, with a couple of exceptions? Uh, does that mean that there's a, a certain amount of dissatisfaction with the democratic socialist institutions that uh, are have been in place uh, all throughout Europe since World, the end of World War II? Gregory? Well, I, I think, I think yeah, one thing is, is, is definitely significant. Either one. Okay. Yeah, so I just want to say one quick thing about that, which is that all companies, all, corp, all private capital ultimately wants to just do whatever it wants to do. The real question is whether the political uh, forces within the state, institutions of the state, are able to restrain that. And I think if you look at places like France and Germany, you see capital trying to kind of, you know, emancipate itself from the regulatory state. And, but I think this is going to change things. People are going to see that they want those state protections more now. Your title refers to democratic socialism. What do you mean by that? Uh, what are the, the key elements that make it both democratic and socialist? Well, when we, when we set out to put out this book, um, one thing that we both agreed on is that really if you look at the history of the great democratic movements of the 19th century, they were always um, historically intertwined with the rise of uh, socialist politics. 
and there was a sense that um, democracy and socialism were, were, were being birthed at the same time. So um, this was, I think, was largely the consensus, um, even on the socialist left, uh, well into the early years leading up to World War One and right before the Russian Revolution. Um, and then there was there was definitely a cleavage between um, socialism's democratic commitments and its uh, socioeconomic commitments. Um, but what we set out. Wait, wait. So, before, so socialism was invoked by both the Nazis and the Soviet Union, uh, but are they were they not really socialist in any way? Well, not. I mean, not in the sense that um, socialism can refer to a broad range of. Uh, policies regarding regulation of industry and regulation of capital, but um, what the socialist tradition that we're trying to um, recover in this volume is one that was inherently democratic, inherently concerned with um, um, questions of democratization, expanding democracy into the workplace. If you look at um, the Nazis, certainly, I mean, the main emphasis was on disciplining labor, on uh, controlling labor more, not giving labor an opportunity to um, resist. Same in the Soviet Union, to be honest. Um, there were, it was, you know, strikes were put down. Um, so what the, the people have called that, it was, really called it state capitalism rather than yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. So I think that's and I think that's an apt, uh, an apt uh, characterization. And I think also there's a sense that the question really is more about democracy, say, than about socialism, and on, if you look at it from this angle. I mean, the reason that we really called it an, an inheritance for our times is that we really feel that that kind of ninth, what was going on in the 19th and early 20th centuries was this realization by working people that democracy really didn't mean anything unless it was able to penetrate the sphere of the economy, that they recognize that uh, property, in particular private property over capital, um, was really the primary resource of power in, in, in society. And they really, were, they really saw that um, if you wanted a full-fledged democracy, then just having a vote was not going to be enough. Just having a set of liberal set of rights or civic rights was necessary but not sufficient, that you were also going to have to have um, a, a form of social democracy, a democracy of how our collective efforts and social, and social wealth was distributed. So in, in your previous book, you wrote about what you called the democratic mind. Are, are you saying there's also a socialist mind or, or ethos? I, there's definitely a socialist ethos. And I think the idea is that you, that in, in many ways, Everything around us, everything that we interact with, is really the product of collective forms of activity. Buildings, universities, radio studios, everything, pencils, everything is ultimately the result of coordinated collective forms of activities, of labor. And the real question is whether the benefits of that go mainly toward the rest of society, the res publica itself, or is it extracted uh, by uh, a small set of people for their own private ends and interests? And I think that really is the fault line 
um, for democracy versus capitalism. Now, um, when the you go ahead, I'm sorry. And well, and I think that's really significant because that's the that's the view that the socialist thinkers and socialist movement people and workers had during the 19th and 20th century, and not only European but also in America. This is a very 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 internationalist way of looking at. Uh, the nature of wages, the nature of private property, and the nature of capital. When the two of you were here in January, we discussed how the anti-science attitudes of right-wingers are related to their attacks on democracy. Aren't we seeing conservative attacks on science now in relation to the, the pandemic? Certainly. What's interesting to look at when you see the, uh, the um, protesters who are demanding that the states reopen in recent days is um, this, this combination of um, anti-vaxxers are sort of joining forces with uh, the sort of more libertarian, alt-right uh, extremist elements that are, that are demanding that the states reopen. And what's interesting is that this also, I think, bears on the discussion that uh, Michael just raised about the notions of the public good and of, of um, recognizing that um, sort of everything around us is a product of our, of our social engagement. This is, a, in a sense, an effort to reject all that. And um, I think, the, so I, in an interesting way, I think the anti-science and the uh, sort of extreme right attitudes co coincide, they, they naturally, um, uh, sort of reconcile themselves with this um, different, this opposition to, you know, um, this sort of more socialistic ethos. You and Michael previously linked anti-science views to a backlash against elites. Could there be a further backlash against elites now that they get preferential treatment during this pandemic? I would certainly I hope that... so. <laughs> I would certainly hope that that would be the positive, back, uh, you know, backlash against elites. But I do think we're seeing, as Greg pointed out, I do think we're seeing with the um, with the protests that are happening in Southern California, Michigan, almost everywhere, is uh, that the far right and anti-science forces are uniting against um, governmental elites, what they, you know, see to be as people uh, telling them how to, you know, live their lives. And I think this is really brings to bear, you know, a fundamental grammar about the difference between a liberal capitalist society versus, say, a democratic socialist society. When we wear masks and go out, as we're learning more and more, we're wearing the masks for each other. I'm really not wearing the mask for me, and I'm not only wearing the mask for you, that the wearing of the masks is to protect all of us. And that realization, and at first, you know, that was, I think, difficult for most people to comprehend. They're like, well, am I wearing the mask because I don't want to breathe in this germ? Oh, no. And then it becomes, oh, I'm wearing the mask so I don't want to cough on someone else and give it to them. And then you realize, like, no, it's about stopping the spread of this as a collective. That's a new way of thinking. Whereas um, someone saying, I don't care, I, I want to, if I, it's my right to go out and get the virus if I want to. I mean, this is fundamentally irrational view, and it's a fundamentally irrational and immature understanding of freedom. And I think that's what socialism brings brings to bear, is this idea that there's a new, higher form of, of freedom, a higher form of, 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 kind of, of, a, of society that is possible when we think differently, 
not in individualistic terms, but as members of a civic association. My guests on Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York today are Michael J. Thompson and Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker, their latest book, An Inheritance for Our Times, Principles and Politics of Democratic Socialism. The influential NYU law professor Richard Epstein argued against government containment and mitigation in the face of the pandemic, and he claimed that the death toll would never rise above 500. Of course, now it's uh, at 70,000. Is that anti-science or simply the thinking of a man who calls himself, a very influential man, who calls himself a small government Calvin Coolidge fan? Yes. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think the liberal. I think this reveals many of the flaws of, of libertarianism. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to just to add that, Greg, go ahead. No, and what I want to, to, to say also, whether if this this goes back to the issue of um, experts versus elites that we discussed back in January. What's interesting is that the people who have been most vocal in um, making these very optimistic projections, whether it's uh, Professor Epstein or um, uh, Elon Musk, for example, these are people who really have no um, grounds for making these optimistic claims. And what what they're doing is they're really they're, these claims aren't grounded in science at all. They're they're grounded in um, their own eagerness to um, uh, um, get markets mobilized again and to galvanize uh, consumer activity. So um, what's interesting is that you have a class of people who, who, who think that they're experts on just about everything when they're, they're experts, if they have any expertise, um, is, is very narrow. Is that what Naomi Klein is addressing when she writes about how conservatives use disasters to advance anti-democratic and conservative economic policy? Yeah, the, the idea of crisis um, in, and uh, neoliberalism in particular um, is really significant. And this is a really one of the reasons why we really have to talk about this going into this crisis of the pandemic. Essentially, and Marx knew this as well. Marx knew, and this is fundamentally part of Marx's whole theory of capitalism, was that it is a system that is going to consistently run into crisis. It's, it suffers contra- contradictions, it's a contradictory system, and it's going to continually run into crisis. The question becomes, and Marx knew this, that who is going to who is going to use the crisis to their advantage? Is it going to be a working class that is conscious of itself and its political aspirations? And if they are not able to do that, then it's going to suffer from basically reactionary forces will take the crisis and and they'll further their own interests. And that's what we saw in 2008. And that's what, in some ways, we're seeing now. I mean. The idea that Shake Shack and um, some of these other large corporations were the first to get some of this bailout money, which they didn't need. Although they, Shake Shack did give its money back first. Uh, some others they, have as I, well. It, true. I think once it was revealed also that uh, public that they that they had received this, that it was they saw it as bad PR to keep it. But I do think that the, the question is going to be, what does education look like coming out of this? What does urban planning look like coming out of this? What does travel look like coming out of this? What does all of these fundamental, what does healthcare look like coming out of this? So the, cri- so the question becomes, does the crisis, and, and 
And one of the reasons why crises are really important is they're moments when society is forced to make a decision about wealth. Are you going to, such as what happened during the Great Depression and World War II, um, or you know, you're going, the societies make a decision to say tax the wealthy, and there's a massive redistribution of wealth that happens during these kinds of crises? Or is it going to be a furtherance of these kind of neo-feudal forms of social relations that we've that that we've seen, and that's a moment right now we don't know. Well, after um, the financial collapse of two thousand eight, which you just mentioned, among the responses were movements like Occupy Wall Street. Right, right. Uh, what happened to Occupy Wall Street? Did it have any lasting effect? And is there evidence of an, any new social movements now? Well, I mean, with Occupy Wall Street, I think what its lasting effect was its positive lasting effect was to polemicize um, the issue of the 99% versus the 1%, which has been so invoked. I mean, it's become really part of our, our mainstream, uh, it's become part of our daily language to a certain extent. So I think that's the really positive thing about Occupy Wall Street. I think where Occupy Wall Street was problematic was that, and this is no fault of the, uh, the participants, was that it was coming out of a period of um, sort of long stagnancy and left-wing movements. And so every, no one was really quite sure what theoretical resources to draw on, what sort of um, strategies to draw on. But the, the real benefit was that it polemicized this issue. The problem now in terms of movements is um, um, that movements – Movements need uh, public space. Movement need, movements need place to, places to gather and, and mobilize, and that is that's not happening now. And for the, because the, it, because we're living months. under stay-at-home restrictions. Exactly. So it's it's very hard for for social movements to mobilize uh, under these kinds of conditions. But I, I, I and I agree with Greg. I think there's another thing, to, a layer to add on top of this, um, which is that in many ways, post the 1960s, um, social, you know, the social movements that emerged, the new social movements that emerged out of the 1960s were really emerging out of the kind of affluent society that had been forged during the 1950s and 60s. And those were movements about questions of, um, and very important questions about symbolic, racial, ethnic forms of, uh, of, of injustice. The, and, and questions about class really were not privileged. So before World War II, you know, the main thrust of social, of progressive social movement, radical social movements were almost always concerning questions of class. And in the 1960s, these movements emerged that tried to say, okay, we, we're coming out of this affluent society, a large middle-class society, wealthy society, large growth rates, a, a blooming welfare state. And now we want to address questions that were, have always been ignored, questions about race, questions about civil rights, questions about sexuality. Those are all important. The problem is that we haven't really gotten back to um, the root of what socialist uh, movements have always been about, these questions about movements that, are, that seek organization of working people, um, questions about uh, a wealth tax, questions about uh, economic justice, so these things have to really come back into the fore for um, social, for movements to kind of really call themselves socialist once again. So in some ways, 
Occupy Wall Street did begin with economic grievances, but over time, um, a lot of it did kind of splinter into these kind of uh, particularistic and kind of you know cultural questions of justice. Now, isn't there some irony in all of this? President Trump signed an executive order using the Defense Production Act to force meatpacking plants to stay open, which is a uh, a centralized economic move. So how would a capitalist theorist justify that? If, if meat producers and workers want facilities to close, does that make Trump's move authoritarian? Well, I think I, I'm, I'm wondering if the uh, I think it is. <laughs> I don't think workers would have mind going back to work if they knew they had the proper protections, which they admitted was impossible. Um, I think in some ways, if uh, the if capital knows, I mean, at the end of the day, if profit's going to be made, if people are going to get sick and die, but profit's going to be made, then I don't think that the actual producers, the owners of the plants, um, really care all that much. I mean, and this is really, it sounds kind of cruel and heinous to say, but honestly, capitalist society, especially since, um, uh, since the 1990s, um, that the interests of capital really are, have been detached from the interests of society as a whole. That the richer, the more inequality you get, the less that the rich um, really care about public safety, public health care, public transportation. They don't care because they don't need it. They don't care, be, they don't care because they don't use it. And, they, and I think you really create a society with a kind of one small elite group, which has, the, all the, which has a majority <clears throat> of power over the financial resources and everyone else. And so if these workers get sick at these plants, they're not going to pay for them to get better. Um, you know, you'll socialize that problem by sending them to the hospitals. Um, but I think Trump's order was authoritarian in that sense because, you know, it's really about keeping the plants open, stopping workers from, say, striking, stopping workers from not going to work. Um, so I think that it, the state, whether the state, come for, you know, Trump had used his power in a more socialist way than it would have been to protect working people and to protect public health. Economists uh, Anne Case and, and uh, Angus Deaton have studied what they call deaths of despair. Do Americans feel that they have too little to say about real change or some of us simply giving up? Neither of you want to tackle that? Oh, well, yes, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, yes, a lot of Americans, it's not that, it's that, they, that they feel that they have too little to say. In a sense, they actually have almost nothing to say as the, as the um, cases in which people are being sent back to work as essential workers without proper protections makes evident. Um, you know, they, they, they're, they're, these people, whether it's a, the, in an Amazon fulfillment center or in um, a, a meat uh, packing um, plant, they, they, they're, they're being forced to put their lives at risk um, because if they don't go to work, they'll be unemployed, and this is a terrible time to be unemployed and to, to starve. So in a sense, they, they don't have a lot to say 
in their daily lives about their their um, their health and their their very their very lives in that sense. And the despair it gives rise to a cycle. Almost all the statistical studies about economic inequality and political behavior, in particular voting behavior, but also not just voting, um, shows that the more inequality there is, the less that people who are poor or close to poor um, not only vote, but read newspapers, talk about politics, involve themselves in political organizations. And, you know, it's stunning when you look at the statistics in the United States um, that the bottom 50% of the uh, income distribution makes less than $20,000 a year in the United States. I mean, it's, yep. it's staggering if you look, if you think about the inequality. So what it means is the, the, there's this dynamic that begins to get uh, uh, moving where the more inequality there is, the less the people who are hurt by it contribute politically, and which gives rise to this kind of uh, dynamic force where inequality rises and increases. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I want to get back to my conversation about democratic socialist socialism with Michael J. Thompson and Gregory R. Smolowitz Zucker as soon as I can, but I, I have to take a, a moment or so to speak frankly to you about the situation here at WBAI. As you might imagine, as a small listener-supported community radio station, WBAI has been utterly devastated by the pandemic. More than half of our contributors have had to pull their funding because of their own financial hardships. And, and that's why we are asking anyone who can afford to, to step up right now and go to our website, wbai.org, or to the phone and call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. One more time, the, the number 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, and then the number two, WBAI.org. And one great way to help keeping this station alive and, and thriving throughout the year is to become a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are, are sustaining members who spread their contributions out throughout the year through a monthly contribution of, of $10, $15, $20, any amount that uh, they feel comfortable with, and that allows us to plan for the future. Uh, 
and, and, and it also shows support for this show, uh, allows the station to remain secure into the future. We won't have to worry in two months uh, where the money is coming from because the BAI buddies, if we get enough of them, will have made our economic situation a little more uh, stable. So starting today, we have another little offer here. The first 10 people who become BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive an invitation to join me for dinner via a Zoom call. So uh, that means that we'll, um, we'll have a conversation. You can ask me anything you want about uh, my 43 years of radio or even <laughs> what bottle of wine I may be pairing with my next meal. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. I'm sure you have all sorts of questions. So um, that's another reason we hope that you will become a BAI buddy. Uh, but the real reason, of course, is that WBAI has been a valuable, an invaluable con uh, institution for a long, long time now, since 1960. Uh, so we hope that we can look far into the future as well financially secure. We can do it with your help. Call us 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. And please make sure that you make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. From all of us at the station, thank you. And I'm happy to go back now uh, to Michael J. Thompson and Gregory Smolowitz-Zucker, uh, their latest book, An Inheritance for Our Times, Principles and Politics of Democratic Socialism from OR Books, with a lot of uh, different contributors. Um, progressives talk about democratic socialism, social democrats, market socialism. How many versions of socialism are there, and how, do they, how much do they differ? I think there are a lot of different uh, approaches to this question, and I think that's why we wanted to focus largely on um, revisiting what the kind of basic ethical principles and political principles of socialism actually are. Now that it was coming back into the main kind of mainstream discourse with Bernie Sanders' campaign and but a lot of younger people. He was often with accusations of, of being a communist because he yeah. used the word socialist. That's right. Well, there's a fundamental, um, just well, sometimes it's cynical to say, uh, you know, that it's that it's just uh, confusion. Usually, it's meant to scare people off. Um, but the dis the differences between socialism and communism are more technical than anything else. The real question that we wanted to ask was, what were the real defining principles for our time that make the socialist tradition and socialist ideas relevant? Why are they still important? And why does uh, our democracy really need um, to have a kind of socialist critique once again? And I think, you know, for, for, for us, <clears throat> really the fundamental idea, uh, uh, one of the fundamental kind of principal ideas is this concept that individuals, the lives of individuals are enriched when the social world in, that they inhabit is itself enriched. And we live in a society where that model has been kind of overturned, where we're taught, where we're, the, the, the values of our society are highly individualistic and highly antisocial. And so we feel that in many ways that there has to be a rethinking 
of the kind of social values that dominate, um, you know, our, our culture and polity. Now, Bernie Sanders, who, uh, who, by the way, contributed an essay to your book, was making that point. Uh, he didn't get enough votes. No, and uh, I mean, one of the things that we are trying to do with this book is actually, I mean, with all due respect to Bernie Sanders, is to kind of divorce um, the long-term aims of a democratic socialist renewal in this country from the personality of Sanders. Sanders has done um, an amazing job of putting it back in um, the public discourse, but I think something that Michael and I, I mean, we had no clue what the outcome of the of the Democratic primaries would be, but one of our concerns was that um, should Sanders, even if actually even if Sanders had, let's say, won the primary, won the presidency, that there was still this kind of um, dearth of real thinking about uh, what the undergirding principles, what the foundational commitments of democratic socialism are. I don't think that was a failing of, on Sanders' part, but there has to be a sense that democratic socialism in America, if it's to continue to have relevance has to be um, less um, attached to specific personalities and become more of its of a self-sustaining public philosophy that can inform a movement. One of the academics in your book, Saskia Sassen, writes of the destruction of Keynesian capitalism and a new type of capitalism that's emerged uh, that emerged in the 1980s. Um, uh, you're calling it a new capitalism. What changed? Has capitalism changed so much that some version of socialism is becoming more appealing or more feasible to some people? Yeah, I think that this that really the the, the shift in capitalism um, from its Keynesian uh, welfare state kind of model, which went into crisis in the 1970s, um, to what happened in neoliberalism from 1980 on is this movement toward uh, what she calls powerfully extractive forms of of economic capitalism. And this really consists in a, and if you really think about it, um, much of what we understand today as capitalism really isn't so much what, you know, people 50 years ago would have understood as capitalism. And part of the reason for this is, um, you know, you have... Um, profits being more and more looking not for uh, to be generated by, say, the production of commodities, but rather through the extraction of rents, and then not just rents on apartments, obviously, but rents on any anything. So Netflix subscription, um, your cell phone, um, all of these things are rents. There, it's a, a question of I, you know, owning say something, and charging people Uber. This is a similar example. It kind of mixes these things. So you, you cheapen labor. You, technology allows you to de-skill labor, uh, pay less wages, but extract larger and larger profits. And this is not just around people, but also the environment and nature. So in Brazil, you just, you know, you just plunder the Amazon. Mm. Um, you drill down into the uh, into Alaska, into the national, you know, wildlife reserves. You you do anything. You extract physical surplus, but also off of people's labor. So one of the phenomena right before the pandemic hit uh, was uh, 
the idea like, you know, you've got a lot of cheap labor out there, younger people perhaps that uh, went to college or weren't able to go to college and find proper work, and now I'll have them just go food shopping for me. I'll have them, you know, put together an IKEA thing for me in my apartment. There is becoming a society where which is less based on commodification because those commodities are being per, uh, produced through globalization through the extracting of cheaper labor in China or Vietnam or Bangladesh. So the whole idea is that capitalism has become much more extractive, mean, and uh, and I think this idea, the question that the book lays, kind of leaves off, because her essay is the last um, in the volume, is, is this finally going to lead to more, a higher degree of consciousness about the inhumanity? of our economic system. In recent decades, under both Republicans and Democrats, many businesses have consolidated. Now three companies dominate uh, telecommunications, Amazon dominates sales, Google searches, Facebook social media. Have we got private centralization instead of the government centralization that conservatives are always (laughs) (laughs) warning us about? So, yeah. And does that um, suggest that conservatives really object to government involvement rather than centralization or, or lack of competition? What's interesting is that, um, rather ironically, over the last 40 years, 50 years, um, neoliberal policies pushed by conservatives and also by Dem- you know, Democrat, Democratic administrations as well have actually used the power of the state to, to make it easier for um, uh Corporations to seize a, uh, a larger hold of a, uh, of a market of market shares. So um, it's really the loosening of the use of government and the state to loosen restrictions and loosen regulations that have made this possible. That, that have made it possible for Amazon to essentially destroy the uh, the, um, the you know the small uh, the small entrepreneurial bookseller um, to destroy. Um, to make uh, to, to provide their their um, website as a platform um, that basically allows them to control um, small sellers as well because the small sellers all become reliant on it. So, if anything, you know, the, it's it, yeah, it is that this opposition to government, but it's still using the power of government and the state to make it easier for um, capital and and corporate interests to seize a, a, a larger share. Of the markets, and this was oh, yeah. always this was always an ideological position. I mean, there are a few people who may be pure libertarians that see the concentration of capital as just as bad as the concentration of government power. But in truth, it's an ideology that has been used since since the Roosevelt administration to protect private property over of over over capital. And I, I you know, and it's it's very clear that. Um, you know, this is one of the contradictions that Marx actually refers to about capitalism, that uh, and why it's incompatible with democracy. Because the more and more you get this concentration of wealth, uh, the more and the more and more you know uh, that democratic institutions also tend to suffer. Well, since you bring up Roosevelt, uh, aren't uh, at the, the song that we played pointed out that a number of programs in the United States could be called socialist? Uh, 
both from the New Deal and uh, from Lyndon Johnson's policy, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. Um, so don't we really live with socialism and, uh, and accept it, or is, is that under attack as well? Well, I think we live with um, a kind of mixed system, and that uh, what's really, uh, if you really want to push this further, there are the states that really have some of the most, the strongest socialist policies are usually states that are really, really red states. Alaska, Wyoming, Texas, all have laws uh, for where citizens of those states, by law, are share in the profits from oil or mineral extractions, for example. In Texas, um, these go to fund uh, public schools, for example. Uh, and so you do have, if you really glean through um, the whether at the state level or the federal level, there are a whole series of what we would understand as really socialistic programs. The real key is, however, the more that capital concentrates itself, the more political power it's able to get, the more it's able to erode opposition to its interests, the more that those, that those lingering programs will probably be destroyed or privatized. The key, the key dynamic here is therefore between, you know, if you think about neoliberalism and the kind of welfare state capitalism, this, what's, what's really at the tension here? The idea is that anything that under, say, the welfare state systems of Roosevelt and Johnson moving on, that anything that you would have seen as a kind of public right, I have a right to, say, accessible education, I have a right to health care, anything that has to be brought into the private sphere and of the sphere of the market. That's the whole project. And that is, that's exactly what's been going on for the past 30 to 40 years. Um, and I think will sadly continue to happen unless people do kind of forge a new consciousness about um, their common rights of, of the common good. What about the past hundred years? This or more. This past Friday was May Day and International Workers Day. Today is the anniversary of the Haymarket Massacre on on May fourth, eighteen eighty six. Hasn't the, the United States suppressed? past progressive movements, sometimes violently? I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the question. Uh, the, the question is, don't we have a history of suppressing uh, progressive movements, sometimes with violence? Uh, and right now, there are all, there's all sorts of talk about violence erupting uh, as a result of what happens in the next election. Yeah, uh, certainly we have a, a history of suppressing um, progressive movements um, violently. Um, the, the labor movement was uh, there was a great deal of bloodshed in the early uh, decades of the of the labor movement. But um, what has been, I mean, what made the New Deal, I think, work was that you did still have a, a vibrant labor movement that persisted and that was able to act as as a base of support, and I think that's a, a crucial um, thing is to ha is to have um, some kind of uh, grounding in um, associations outside of the state that can actually serve to push the agenda. I mean, the the, the labor movement in this country is now at, at its weakest point since post the, the Gilded Age. But I think it's vital to keep um, pushing for rebuilding those types of institutions. 
Now, we don't have much time, in fact, just a few minutes, but uh, and there's so many things that I wanted to get to, but many uh, people associate socialism with a loss of or denial of private property, and then any hint of higher taxes is treated as an uh, as a electrified rail in the United States. Um, should the tax structure of the United States be changed, and are there ways of, of uh, protecting private property uh, in a socialist environment? Well, I think, you know, the question is private property over what? And I think what social, the socialist tradition has always looked on was that um, there's the justified private property that one has is private property for which one has worked for and labored for. And more, most importantly, um, that that private property becomes a problem only when it is accumulated to such an extent that you're able to control the, other, the labor of other people. That that is the moment when you have too much. That's when you have too much property, too much power. In particular, private property over collective forms of how other people work, where the surplus of their efforts are directed. When, a, when private individuals have that kind of power, then socialism basically says that that has to be democratized. And I do think that that's why the concentration and the, much of the debate that was happening with the Democratic Party um, back in the, in, through the fall and the winter was over this question of a wealth tax. Because it's one way to begin talking about how not only to talk about equality again, but also to talk about how this, this, this idea that the private wealth that exists in the United States is so extensive, so highly concentrated, um, that it grants these people ex extraneous forms of power, that that has to be democratized. And I think the one thing to start with would be, is definitely a movement for a wealth tax that would start to redistribute and re-neutrify the public the public realm and public institutions. So I think that's one important thing to, to note, is that the absence of private property is not the absence of one's car or home or, you know, the property that they own. It's the question of uh, the pr private property being able to exert power over others. That's now, the wealth, a the wealth taxes that were discussed during the debates would have only affected the extremely wealthy people in this country. Why do you think that there was still so much resistance? I think um, there's been a, a narrative that's been constructed and, and very um, uh, strongly pushed that has sort of perversely um, suggested to people that um, if you start by taxing, oh, uh, imposing a wealth tax on, say, you know, um, Jeff Bezos, that that this will soon lead to Slippery the slow. erosion of. I'm sorry. The slippery slope. Yes. Yeah. And we're, unfortunately, yes, yes. we've come to the bottom of the slope because we've run out of time. <laughs> My thanks to you. Boy, we have to have you back to talk more about this. Michael J. Thompson and Gregory Similowitz-Zucker, their book, An Inheritance of uh, for Our Times, Principles and Politics of Democratic Socialism, pu uh, published by OR Books. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Leonard. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's program. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who prepared this segment. If you're discovering our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. 
We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And please follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you would like to send me uh, your thoughts about this or any of our past shows, you can reach me by email at LeonardLocate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is in a very difficult position right now because of the pandemic, and we are asking anyone who's able to donate to please go to our website, WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602. And even if you've made a donation, here's another way you can help during this pandemic. WBAI is offering WBAI face masks for a contribution of $35. It's not only a great way to protect yourself, but also to tell the world which station you like the best when you wear a WBAI face mask. $35 may not seem like a large amount, but uh, when you sell 300 masks, uh, that will raise $10,500 for the station. So we're really hoping that you will consider uh, and uh, if, if you consider what WBAI is broadcasting during this pandemic important, well, that's a, a really important reason to show your support, whether it's by buying the face mask or, or becoming a BAI buddy or whatever. Uh, we need you now more than ever. So get that WBAI face mask today, a protective mask with a BAI logo emblazoned on the front, and it's $35. Um, uh, 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org and thank you all for helping keep free speech alive in New York City. We hope you can join us tomorrow when Sayu Bodrani, uh, founder and president of New American Leaders, will discuss the impact of the Trump administration's new immigration ban. We'll see you then.